morning, Harvest. Uh, my name is Kenan Vaughn. Delight to be your pastor and to preach God's Word uh, this morning uh, over um, live stream as we continue to meet in this fashion for the time being. Uh, we hope that that will change soon. We uh, are meeting with our medical advisory team and our elders and uh, making plans to begin meeting together again soon, uh, likely in the month of June. And so more details to come on that. Uh, I'll be emailing those things to you probably this week. Um, thanks also for great word uh, in our call to worship. Um, I share your lament and all of our lament over uh, the ways that we get uh, reminded of the injustice and the uh, hatred, especially along the lines of race, racism that exists in our nation and beyond, and it's heartbreaking. And I'm praying that the power of the gospel break those strongholds wherever they exist, whether in my heart or our heart, uh, and certainly uh, the ways they exist uh, throughout our community and the world. So let's keep praying towards that end. This morning, we're going to continue our series in John 14. If you would turn there uh, with me this morning, uh, this is going to be kind of a part two. <laughs> I don't know that I intended it to be that way, but I got about halfway through last week what I intended to teach, and so I want to pick up. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Helper, and uh, that's such a significant ministry that gets so little airtime from our pulpits often. And so I wanted to sit in this a little longer this morning, uh, continue uh, the verses we did not cover. So we'll be this morning in verses 18 through 24. So John chapter 14, verses 18 through 24. And wherever you are this morning, if you're able to stand to your feet uh, for the reading of God's word. John 14, 18 through 24 reads this way. Jesus speaking, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me and does not keep my words, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This is the word of God for the people of God, and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your word. Oh, that it's alive and that it's true, that it's sufficient, that it's inerrant. It is a treasure of heavenly instruction. And we seek truth this morning. And we ask that by the power of the helper sent to illumine uh, our minds to truth, to Christ, to help us, give us a discerning spirit, I pray that you would minister to us even as we sit under your word this morning, that you would speak through me. Lord Jesus, and that your people might have ears to hear. I pray that I would decrease, Lord Jesus, you would increase. You must, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So kind of as our on-ramp in, what we saw uh, the last couple weeks is that there are a people uh, who will believe uh, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, just as he said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there are those who believe that. They're convicted of their sin. They put their whole hope and trust and confidence in Christ. And Jesus says of those people, he will go away and prepare a place for them. He will come back and receive them. 
to himself. And in the meantime, he's not going to leave them. Our text today will say his orphans. Last week it says, I will send you another. He will be called the helper. He's the spirit of truth. We looked at the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead last week. One God in three persons, that the helper is another of the same substance, of the same kind as Jesus. He's a he. He's a person. And he will indwell believers in Jesus Christ. He will baptize them into the body of Christ. He will seal them for the day of redemption. He will gift them for the edification of the body. We see his ministry uh, being critical from the calling of lost uh, people, lost in their sin, um, illuminating them to the truth of the gospel, regenerating their hearts upon faith in Christ, all the way holding them, keeping them, maturing them until he glorifies them in the presence of Christ. I'll send you one, a helper. He's critical for your sanctification, critical for your justification, your sanctification, and your glorification. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Equal in nature, equal in divine essence, unique in their role in the great work of our salvation, of redemption. So we saw that last week, that uh, there's a mean time in which believers wait upon the coming of Christ to call us to himself. He's given us his spirit who dwells with us and in us. That's where we left off last week. And we're to be a spirit-filled, spirit-led, spirit-guided people. And we're meant to, we saw last week, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. We're meant to be a people who love Jesus so much that our desire is to keep his commands. Yet we have a problem. And the problem is ourselves. It's our flesh. Uh, It's when we get in the way, when our sin nature gets in the way of our uh, spirit-filled, spirit-led desires, we have this tension that we're always wrestling with. We claim to be without sin, this side of glory, we're, we're liar. That's what First John will say. And yet, he doesn't leave us as orphans. He's going to sanctify us, conforming us to the very image of Christ, which is our desire. We don't really come kicking and screaming. There's moments when we do. But we try desperately to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in us. We want to be more like Christ. We delight in him. Uh, we've gotten downwind of ourselves to know we stink. I don't want to be more like Kenan. I want to be less like Kenan, more like Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit, we cling to him as he carries us forth, maturing us in Christ. So that's where we pick up this morning in verse 18. Jesus promises this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So the idea is he's insinuating that he is leaving But don't worry, he's not leaving you in such a way that he will leave you as orphans. In other words, he's not leaving you without any guidance. He's not leaving you without anyone to help you along to maturity. That's what parents do for a child. They help a child grow from an infant all the way to a mature adult. That's really part and parcel of what parenting is. And of course, for a Christian, it's to help them become a godly adult, to help them know and love and follow Jesus and their faith be their own. Well, in the same way, Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan spiritually. When I have called you, illumined you to the truth of who I am, presented myself and you have received me, I'm not going to leave you there in your spiritual infancy. My goal, Jesus is saying, is for you to mature, to come to adulthood in your spiritual life. Uh, uh, There's a warning to the Hebrew church that if you're three years as a believer and you're still drinking spiritual milk and you haven't progressed to meat, again, this illustration of of a baby and its progression of what it's able to eat and digest. So that's a problem. The idea for Christians is that we mature in our understanding, in our knowledge, and in our obedience. 
And the Holy Spirit is the one critical to helping us mature. Critical in the way a parent is critical in bringing a child along to maturity. I used the illustration last week of when I helped my father build that fence. Uh, uh, holding the gate open was necessary but not really essential. <laughs> Yet in the way that Catherine, uh, when I watch her with uh, little Mac, she is necessary and critical to his development. By the way, it was funny this week to see the way my children are at least listening to the sermons, hopefully applying them. We were putting up our little pool fence for the summer, our little safety kind of infant protector, uh, little miniature black fence to go around our pool. And I was popping, uh, I was pushing the poles in. My son, uh, Caleb, was popping out the, uh, the little stoppers that are in the holes presently. And Jonathan wanted a job, so we gave him a Ziploc bag, and he went around behind Caleb, and Caleb handed him the, the stoppers, and he put them in the Ziploc bag. And he said, Dad, I feel like my job is necessary but not critical. I said, all right, I'm proud of you for listening. But that's not the job of the Holy Spirit, necessary and essential. We don't grow, develop to any sort of maturity apart from the work of the helper, the spirit of truth. So Jesus said, not leaving you as orphans, I will come to you. By the way, I want to make the point, I will come to you. Is it Jesus or is it the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. Again, this is foundational in our Trinitarian understanding of who God is. That yes, Jesus is saying for the Holy Spirit to be sent to you, because that's what he just said in the previous verse. For us, it seems like a different sermon because it was last week. It's not. It's a sentence previous in the same speech. For the Holy Spirit to come to us is for Christ to come to us. For us to be indwelt by the Spirit of Christ is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. Uh, Paul would say, um, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the indwelling of the Spirit is the very indwelling of Christ in our lives. And he says, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you yet a little while in the, in, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Christ is about to be crucified, dead and buried. He'll resurrect the third day. He'll appear over the course of 40 days uh, in various times, about 11 recorded instances, we know to the apostles, certainly to even a crowd as large as 500. Then he'll ascend to the Father of heaven. And again, the world will see him no more. But look at this. You will see me. Good word of encouragement. They would have needed this uh, on day one and two after the crucifixion of Christ. You will see me again. They will see him in the resurrection appearances. He'll appear, First uh, Corinthians 15 says, to Cephas first. Uh, and then to uh, the 12, then to 500 at one time, uh, then to James, then to all the apostles. He'll appear to them multiple times. They will see him. And look at this. Because I live, this is Christ alive from the grave, the resurrected Christ. Because I live, you will also live. Now, he's not merely talking about his rising as the first fruits from the grave, that one day after you die, you too will be uh, uh, raised from the grave. That's true. But he's talking about, in this life, you're going to be alive from the dead, just as you see me resurrected from the grave. In other words, and by the way, Romans 6 is your commentary on this. Romans 6, especially verse 5 and following, says, we don't merely join Christ in his death to sin. When we believe in Christ, it's not merely a believing, and I'm going like this, I can't help but when I think of Romans 6, I think of baptism. We're dead to sin in Christ. We're, we, take, we go under that water to signify a death to our old self. But we don't keep you under Hadn't yet, aren't planning on any, baptizing anyone. We're always going to bring you back because we're adjoined to Christ. We're adjoined to him in his death, and the forgiveness of sin is ours. And yet we are also adjoined to him in his new life. Because he lives, we will have a newness of life. 
Christians are not merely new believers. They're new creations. Understand this. To be a new creation in Christ means that we have been given the mind of Christ. We've been given a set of spiritual desires, longing to be more surrendered to our Lord and Savior, frustrated by our sin that we once delighted in. Understanding now there is death where we thought there was life, and there is life where we thought there is death. Life found in Christ alone. Um, in the American church today, kind of a, a popular stereotype is that there's a whole lot of hypocrites. There's a lot of people who say that they're going to heaven because they believed in Christ, and yet their lives don't look any different from the lives of, of, of people who, who, who are uh, lost and don't proclaim to know Christ at all. And you say, there's no difference. These people are just hypocrites. And, and that's really sad when that's true. That's probably emblematic of uh, the inauthenticity of many believers or, or those who say they're believers but truly aren't, the inauthenticity of their faith. The idea of a sincere and saving faith is the idea that you will find, yes, forgiveness in Christ's death, but newness in his life. That there ought to be evidence that you're saved because you're a new creation. There's a difference in your life. There's an obedience because of a love for Jesus. There's a gospel-driven obedience. There's a difference in knowing the story. There's a difference in believing in Christ cognitively. I know the story. I think he died. I think he died for me. I'm in, uh, you know, treating it almost as a sense of uh, that's good so that when I die, uh, I'll be forgiven and given eternal life. Now, back to whatever I'm really pursuing, which is this world and my own gain and glory. There's a difference in cognitively believing a story and experientially and relationally knowing Christ. And the way faith is used in Scripture, it's a faith that uh, inaugurates a relationship with Christ. So if you're believing but don't have any relationship with Christ, that's not biblical belief. That's not saving faith. And I think filling our churches today are many quote-unquote believers who only know cognitively the story and person of Christ, but don't know experientially and relationally Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus said it, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Someone who's truly saved, it's implanted in them a, a holy brokenness over their sin, a holy desire to be consecrated unto the Lord, to be surrendered to him, a uh, a pure love for their Savior and a longing for Him. The Holy Spirit can't help but produce that longing. That's the Holy Spirit's cry to glorify Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us. There's a cry in our heart, in our spirit, to glorify Jesus. That's what's true of the Christian. Can you be a Christian and be alien to the effects of the new birth? Biblically, no. That would be to be an unregenerate Christian. That's an oxymoron. There's no such thing in the Bible. Again, Jesus said, for those that love me, they will obey. How are we going to obey? I'm giving you the helper. And the helper will produce fruit in you that is in step with your desires to love and honor me. So he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm coming to you for the Spirit to come to you, for Christ to come to you. 
The world won't see me, but you'll see me, the resurrection. And because I live, you will live. You'll have new life. That's the idea. And in verse 20, in that day, you'll know that I am in my Father. How do you know he's in his Father? The resurrection. Leaves no doubt that Jesus Christ is who he said he would. And you'll know this. You'll know that you are in me and I am in you. How are you going to know that? The Holy Spirit leaves no doubt. The resurrection leaves no doubt that Jesus is in the Father. The Holy Spirit leaves no doubt that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. Again, how do you know? There's a new creationness about you if you're a believer. You just know it's confirmed in your spirit that I'm not yet who I'm going to be, but I am no longer who I was. Christ has radically transformed my idea of who I am, who he is. He's brought me to my knees in a holy surrender to Christ. I have counted it a great privilege to, to call him Lord and Savior, my life for his glory. I didn't used to think like that. Now I'm convinced of it. My life is in him because his life is in me. And the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God testifies to my spirit that I am a son of God and a co-heir of Christ. My hope is in Christ, my joy is in Christ, my delight's in Christ, my peace is in Christ. I've been sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. I'm assured that I'm His because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit alive in me. I'm not guessing. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm just not sure if I'm saved. Can you help me understand? I say, well, sure. Tell me about your conversion. Tell me about when the lights came on. What did that look like? Just, you don't have to get the words. I'm not looking for right theology, but I'm looking for a, a story that tells of, of, of someone going from darkness to light, not merely here, but here in their hearts. Tell me about what your life has been like since then. Tell me about what you're broken over in your life right now. Tell me about what God's doing in your life right now. And if all these questions are foreign to them, then I don't think it would be right for me to say, oh, I'm sure you're okay. I don't want to give them a false assurance of salvation because Jesus' own words, he said, you will know that you're in me and that I am you. How in the world do we know? That's the Holy Spirit's ministry in us. You know because the Spirit is alive in you. And just as the disciples could not deny that Christ was alive, you can't deny it either. He's alive, and I know it because he's alive in me. And wouldn't it be great if the church was full of a people alive in the Spirit, quickened by the Spirit, quick to confess, broken over sin, longing for purity, gospel-driven obedience, loving others, uh, over themselves, their neighbor as themselves, putting the interest of others above their own? And what if the world looked at the church and said, uh, what gives? What happened to you guys? How are you all like this? What's the secret? And we would all say, it's not me. There's a helper. He is God in the third person of the Holy Spirit. And he's alive in me, and it's the most joyous life-transforming, life-giving, life-altering reality that I've ever experienced, and I'll never be the same. And the good news is I won't be the same tomorrow as I am today because he's not giving up on me. What a testimony that would be. That's what the church is meant to do. It's meant to display 
uh, a foreshadowing of the kingdom to come under the reign and rule of Christ. It's meant to give the world a glimpse of his lordship. Well, he goes on to say, and, and by the way, let me just say this one, one more time. This, this bothered me in my spirit this week enough to, to just highlight it one more time. Jesus gets a bad name in the community, in American Christianity, in America. He gets a bad name because of people who profess to know him and yet don't have lives that are lived obediently for him. Remember what it says? Those who love me will obey. It's not a command, it's a fact. And this doesn't align with, the, with, the, um, with the, what people are seeing. And so it gives Jesus a bad name. Here's, here's the, it makes it seem as if the gospel is powerless. Anybody that has experienced the gospel in way of salvation by grace through faith in Christ knows it is anything but powerless. It is absolutely transformative. The problem is not a powerless gospel. It's a faithless community of professing Christians. I'm always reminded of the quote of uh, Martin Luther. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, I can talk about orthodox theology all day long, but where the heat of the battle rages, I do not confess Christ, that I am merely a, a, a sounding gong. There's no substance there to what I profess. My life must confess what my mouth professes. And if it's true saving faith, it will. Anything else is to have a form of godliness with no power. Paul warned Timothy about that. He said, in the end times, you'll have a whole lot of people professing to be Christians. It'll be a form of godliness with no real substance, no power. All right. Whoever, verse 21, has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Again, you and I say, boy, that is exactly my desire. Well, good news, he's given us a helper that we can act according to our new desire to obey him, which is his desire for us, to a far greater degree and an increasingly greater degree all the days and seasons of our life. This is why I, I never longed to be an old man when I was younger, but it's getting sweeter. Old age, and I'm kind of in the midlife season, as I look towards old age, what I long for is a day where there'll be less of me in my fleshliness as there is today. A day where there'll be more godliness, more humility, greater perspective, more wisdom, more seasoning in Christ, more of the character of Christ, more of the fruits of the Spirit. And I believe that. I believe it for myself, not because I think I'm going to white knuckle my way there, because I think the Holy Spirit's faithful. Should God give me another generation? Should he give me the years? I'm hopeful that he'll be faithful to his promise. That as I keep stumbling forward in an effort to cooperate, he's going to produce that godly character in me. And I'm hopeful for that. I long for that. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Understand two things here. He says, if you, if you obey me, it, it does two things. It, uh, it promises something, and it proves something. What does it prove? It proves that you're mine, Jesus is saying. He who loves me will keep my commands. So if you're a, a one who is driven by your love for Christ towards obedience, that proves that you're his. 
That's a wonderful assurance to yourself. That, that's not natural, sinful man's desire. That's the spiritual man reborn by the regenerating work of Christ. That's now your desire. Praise be to God, it proves you're his. But it also promises something. Look at the last part of this verse. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. I love this part. This is my favorite part of the text this morning. It promises this, that as you are striving towards Christ out of a love for him because he first loved us, he's going to meet you in your striving with a greater and greater manifestation of himself. He's going to reveal himself to you to an ever-increasing degree. This reeks of relational intimacy. Do y'all see that? You're going to get more of me the longer you pursue me. You keep running. This relationship with Christ is not stale. If your testimony is, 26 years ago, I put my trust in Christ and I'm saved. How about since then? What do you mean? How about since then? Well, I, I mean, I've, I've tried to be consistent in church and I've tried to raise my kids along Christian values and I've tried to generally live a good life. There's something missing in that testimony. Jesus says, as you live pursuing obedience in, in, uh, because of in response to the love you have in your heart for me, I'm going to keep manifesting myself to you. That there's a dynamic, growing, transformative relationship with the living God of the universe and the second person of the Trinity. That is an awesome promise. That's what's ours in Christ. There's nothing stale about a relationship with Christ. It's it's. Just like my marriage, Catherine and I, my sweet, beloved wife, Catherine, we celebrated 14 years Wednesday night. We actually celebrated Tuesday night because Wednesday night I was uh, doing a Discover Harvest with many of you. <laughs> but Tuesday night, we celebrated 14 years by the grace and mercy of God. Gee whiz. Praise God. And I can tell you this, very quickly, when I met Catherine, I saw the spiritual depth and character of this woman, the beauty inside and out. I was so amazed at who she was. I had this longing to be with her, and there was, uh, there was, it was just a good longing. It wasn't merely a, a, uh, a desire for her physically. It wasn't merely physical attraction. It was this deep longing to, to be with her. And so very quickly, that turned into a, a proposal and ask, will you be with me? Will you be mine? Will you receive me as yours? Will you marry me? And that's, a, that's an unbelievable commitment. In, in terms of uh, our life under the sun, that's about as strong as it gets, second only to our surrender to Christ. There's a surrendering element. I'm going to love you and serve you unconditionally with all I am until death do us part. It doesn't get any stronger than that. That's quite a promise. And I was in love with Catherine enough to make that proposal, to say those covenant vows in front of God and in front of all of our best friends and our pastors. And on that day, May 13th, 2006, that was not the end of our relationship. We did not consummate the marriage and say, all right, you do your thing, I'll do mine. Uh, Every once in a while, we'll connect through prayer, we'll make sure we're on the same page should the Lord give us kids and parenting and, you know, we'll just kind of cruise through life with the same last name. Um, I hope that you got depressed to even hear me say it. That's not marriage. There's a, there's a moment, a consummation. 
there's, a, uh, there's vows, there's a commitment, there's witnesses, there's celebration, and then that's the beginning of this dynamic adventure, which, yes, has its peaks and has its valleys, has its difficulty, has its misunderstandings, and yet it's a vibrant, alive, dynamic thing that requires uh, me to constantly die to myself and pursue her and remember my vows. And by the way, the more faithful I am in pursuit of her, the more I get of her. That's the very reward. There's a greater manifestation of who she is. I get to know more who she is. That's revealed to me for my own delight and my own sanctification. Now that's marriage. Marriage is good. This is better. Your relationship with Christ did not consummate when you walked an aisle, uh, when you prayed a prayer. That, that wasn't the end. That was the beginning of a dynamic living relationship with God. And the more you pursue, it's a promise. You get more and more of Jesus very quickly. How does he reveal himself to you? Let me just list off a few ways. One, through his word. I talked about this last week. The Bible's no longer a dead document to you. Not when you're illumined by the Holy Spirit to the truth of Christ. When you go to your word, Harvest, I want this for our church about as bad as I want anything. I want you to open the word of God and just know this is the living God speaking to you. And, and by the way, I've never, I've had plenty of quiet times where I'm distracted and get nothing out of it. That's, that's fair. I've never had a time, though, where I've been in God's word and I've been attuned to what the Spirit is saying, where I've looked in and meditated on God's Word, where there's not been application in my life, where, where somehow I don't see something that pricks my spirit, that brings about a certain thought, that leads me to godly sorrow, which leads me to repentance, that leads me to confession, or that quickens me to a greater love for Christ, or gives me a conviction to what I need to uh, do that day even, that would be a God-honoring thing, brings people to mind, brings truth to mind, brings sin to mind, convicts me of righteousness and sin, through his word, Jesus manifests himself to us. There's an excitement. I want you to go to your Bibles in the morning with excitement, with expectation. You open these pages and you listen to the word of God. What does he have for me today? There's no more important word. You're like, you're what your boss says, what your wife says, what your kids say. Nothing will compare to what the living God says to you when you open the pages of his word. He'll manifest himself to you more and more. You'll learn that, and by the way, the well will never run dry. It's the promise. You pursue me, I'm gonna manifest myself. I'm gonna reveal myself to you. He reveals himself through his word. He reveals himself to us through prayer. Pray about the word. Ask for greater understanding. God bends our minds and our will to his he gets our lives on his kingdom agenda. Yeah, I mean, there, there's been radical life decisions. I've heard so many testimonies from so many of you that you were going one way and through the conviction of prayer and the Holy Spirit, God led you another way and it didn't make any sense to you or anyone around you and then years later you understand. That's the excitement of being in a dynamic relationship with the living God who is at the wheel. You've given over the keys. Through prayer, through his word, through ministry, Listen, as you start to just try to share the, the truth of your faith, faith, which by the way, your life ought to be a witness. If you're in a relationship, your life testifies to the transforming power of the gospel before you ever say anything. Your life gives you credibility. Your life gives you a platform to now put words to it, now explain to somebody what is happening. As you begin to minister, you'll find the Great Commission is true that not only will Jesus 
not only has he commanded you to make disciples of all nations, but he said, and lo, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. You find you're not alone. He manifests himself too. He empowers you for the task. Uh, quick story, I remember uh, being in Zambia in the southern part of Africa. This was probably some 15 years ago-ish. And uh, I was there with a team uh, to teach. It was like a, a college students from all over the country and neighboring countries. It was about 2,000 college students. And we were doing, they called it like more of a revival. But uh, we were preaching the gospel and, and, and doing training all day long. And I would speak at nights, and our whole team would train during the day in small groups. And I, I was young, uh, 15 years ago, I was... Um, not a, an experienced communicator, so to say. I had a little bit of experience through youth ministry, but not much. I certainly never feel, even today, I don't ever feel like I'm knowledgeable enough as, as much as I want to be. Um, but, but certainly 15 years ago, I was, I was new in ministry. And this was the largest crowd I'd ever spoken to, 2,000 people in a foreign context. And it was the uh, first night I was about to speak, and they were in there, and there was worship, and there was this massive a structure filled with um, uh, these folks singing, and I, I just got so nervous and overwhelmed that I went outside, and this is uh, uh, still a moment, it's a, mo- it's a moment that has marked my life, I've never forgotten it, you hear it in every prayer I pray before I preach, but I went outside, um, large stone about 30 yards away from the auditorium, it was a starry night, beautiful, I went out to this stone, there was only about two songs till I was supposed to speak, I felt overwhelmed, I was scared. All of a sudden I felt like I personally am not enough for this moment. I don't have what it takes. I don't have a good enough word. I don't have a strong enough testimony. I'm not a strong enough example. I am, uh, I, 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 I need help, like I can't, I can't do this. Um, in full disclosure, I cried that night on a rock under the sky and for about a song I just cried. I thought, if I run that way, they'll, they'll never know the difference. And, uh, and over the course of me sobbing through a song, uh, the Holy Spirit began to minister to my heart. And the first thing that happened was there was a peace that just began to settle in. There was some, I didn't hear anything audibly, but there was some kind of a, a, a message to me that was, that was this, you're not enough, but I am. Like, I've got this. I just need you to be a servant. I just need you to give, speak the words that I give you. There was this calming presence of, I don't need you to do this. I'll do this. I just need you to stand up and testify to who I am. I will go to work supernaturally in the hearts of 2,000 students. I can handle that. I can handle transformation. Uh, that's my business. Your business, give a faithful testimony of who I am. Uh, that night is when I prayed I said, Lord, I, was, uh, I said, I need less of me. I need more of you. And I just said it over and over and over and over again until the next song ended and they were introducing me and I walked all the way in just saying, less of me, more of you. I must decrease, Lord Jesus, you must increase. And I felt a peace that passed the, my common understanding as I spoke to those people, and that was really the beginning of a, of a ministry and preaching and teaching, and that's my prayer every single time I stand before you and open God's word, less of me, more of you. God, I will testify, I will preach and teach, but I need you or nothing of any eternal 
kingdom, spiritual, transformative, gospel, power, value will happen in the lives of your people. Less of me, more of you. Through ministry, uh, there's guys that say all the time, I've never had that kind of empowering come upon me. And so I've never shared. I would say this, if you share, you'll find that kind of empowering. You'll find the power come upon you. Jesus said, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He'll empower you. You'll be my witnesses. It's, it's like this cyclical thing. A lot of people say, well, if only I were empowered by that like that, I'd go tell everyone. You start telling everyone, you'll be empowered like that. The Holy Spirit is alive. It's a living time. Step out there in faith. Step on the water, eyes fixed on Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit come alongside and empower you. Let him give you the words. Experience the thrill of the great adventure of the Great Commission. And then let me say this, through the church, we're man- he manifests himself to us through the church. First Corinthians 12, he's given us all gifts for the edification of the body, that we're all literally meant to spur one another along uh, to faith and good works in the way we interact with one another. He manifests himself through us through the corporate gathering. That's why we long to be back together. So that's a command, don't forsake this gathering. We, uh, in our interpersonal relationships, in the fellowship with brothers and sisters, Jesus manifests himself to us. And one more just through the experience of life, especially with crisis and suffering. If you're in, we're in all in a crisis right now in a pandemic, and it's a great opportunity for us to learn. It's, nationally, there's a hitting of our knees. There's a seeking, looking to the heavens. There's a seeking after God that maybe we don't normally do when times are quote unquote good. It's the same in our lives. I, I, I think that mountaintops are wonderful. They're celebrations of God's faithfulness. They're, I love the mountaintops, but the valleys are where I grow. The hard times where I have to soul search, where I'm humbled, where I have to confess, that's when the, uh, the, 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 the fire begins to burn off the impurities, and I'm malleable in the Lord's hands, and he produces in me a greater character of Christ. I don't long for valleys, but in the valleys, Christ manifests himself to me in greater ways. So Jesus says, you pursue me, and what was the key to Christ manifesting himself? Gospel-driven obedience. If you love me, You'll obey me. Gospel-driven obedience. All right, verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot. So this is the disciple Thaddeus. This is his big moment. Lord, how is it you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? In other words, if you're about to reveal yourself to the world and reign and establish your kingdom and every eye will see and men will beat their sword and plowshares, that's to everyone, right? How are you only gonna manifest yourself to us and not everyone? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. It's a good question. It's the same thing disciples ask in Acts 1, Um, just before he ascends, are you gonna reveal yourself and establish your kingdom now? He doesn't rebuke them. He says that date's coming. The times and days are unknown. But here's what you're about. I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses. He tells Thaddeus the same thing. He doesn't give him a hard no. He just says, look, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. There's a day I'm coming, Jesus is ultimately saying. He won't deny that. There's a day I'm coming. But this day, if you love me, obey me. And look what will happen. You love me and obey me. My father, he who keeps my, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And this day, those who love Christ, obey him, he will dwell with us. A couple things on this. Uh, to be loved by the father, this is an active, this is a father delighting in you. This reminds me of Exodus chapter 19, five, where he says, if you obey me to Israel, you'll be my treasured possession. God had already called Israel to be his people. He had already said, I called you out to be my people to demonstrate, I'm gonna demonstrate my glory in you and the whole world will see it and you're to testify to who I am. 
He already called them. He would not go back on his word. He wasn't going to revoke them as his people in their disobedience. But he said, if you delight in me, you'll be my treasured possession. The idea is I'll delight in you. This is a great illustration for this. Uh, Anyone that's parents, when you have children, you love them. You're not going to trade them in when they're disobedient. But you grieve their disobedience. You grieve it for them. You grieve what they're missing. You know that you've given them good and loving commands for their own good. And when they disobey, they bring harm, they bring danger, they bring consequence. Even your own loving discipline. By the way, I've never enjoyed disciplining my kids. I never do. Catherine and I joke about it. It takes energy. It's hard. we got to hold each other accountable to discipline them. Because sometimes it's just easier to go, oh, please don't disobey again. But that's not loving. Proverbs says if you spare the rod, you hate your son. The idea is if you're not willing to discipline them, you're not loving that child. God loves us. When we disobey, we grieve him. He lovingly disciplines. He doesn't revoke us as his children, but he disciplines us. But conversely, when we obey the same way, when one of my children obeys, it, it, it warms my heart, not, not because it makes much of me, but because I, I know the goodness that obedience will have for them and their own maturity. I can dote on them. I can love on them. I can squeeze them and say, yes, I can reward them. God will actively dote on you. He will actively love you. He squeezes. He delights in. You're his treasured possession in obedience. That's a beautiful, and the children, boy, do they, do they, they love that moment. That, that, we want that to be their motivation, not fear, but love. God wants to actively love us and us to be so enamored with his love that that's why we continue to obey. And it's this beautiful, cyclical relationship of gospel-driven obedience. And he says he'll come and make his home with us. In the Old Testament, that was Israel's privilege, that God tabernacled among them, that the temple was in Jerusalem. Every other kingdom had their great mountains, their great rivers, their great powers. You come to Jerusalem, you see God. Well, in the New Testament, Paul will tell the Corinthian church twice, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 6, 19, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? The now that you are the dwelling, God has, he dwells in us. The world is meant to look at us if they want to see who God is and the transforming power of the gospel. What a humbling and yet convicting thought. And he says in 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Look, the key is gospel-driven obedience, that because we love him, we strive for him. We strive for obedience. We strive for the Father's squeeze. And Christ keeps manifesting himself to us, and the delight in him becomes greater, and the Holy Spirit keeps conforming us to his image, and he helps us do what we long to do, which is obedience. Paul would say it this way in Philippians 3. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That means that newness of life. Paul's going, I want to know it, and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so to somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying this. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, he's saying, I want to know the newness of life that comes when I die to myself, just like Christ endured the cross. I want to take up my cross and follow Jesus. I want to know what it is to have less of Paul so that I can have more of him. Do you long for it with Paul? I'll take the fellowship of sharing in his suffering if that means more newness of life. Let me tell you this, there are no shortcuts to intimacy with Christ. Listen to this, 
no shortcuts. The way to experiencing God, the way to intimacy with Christ goes by way of the cross. You lay your mind down, you receive the mind of Christ. You lay your will down, you receive the will of God. You realize you are powerless, you are empowered by his spirit. You take every desire for personal gain and glory, you surrender it, that your life might bring gain and glory for Christ. There's no shortcut. I even think there's been some of the misrepresentations of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We've magnified, we've made the varsity gifts. Even in my own lifetime, there was pressure on me as a young believer. Folks said, hey, we need to get you to have this experience or pray over you until tongues come upon you, until you have the gift of tongues. And I didn't know my Bible well enough to know, 1 Corinthians 12, some have this gift, some don't, says it pretty clearly. And I remember thinking, why? And they said, because you'll have a greater intimacy with Christ. Well, there's some credence to a prayer language. I think 1 Corinthians 14 says, there's some edification in my own uh, spirit uh, if I have a prayer language that's given to me. But that's not a shortcut to intimacy with Christ. You don't get any commands for the believers to say, here's how you know me and experience me and I manifest myself to you. You don't get that. You get Jesus over and over you in sound pneumatology saying this, you love me, you obey me. The Spirit will help you, I'll give you more of me. You keep going a long way in the same direction in gospel-driven obedience and you'll have maturity. You'll have intimacy. You'll have a great experience of me. It comes by way of the cross. I saw the most fun picture of striving yesterday. I, I saw something yesterday that will be etched in my memory for my entire life. I wish I had it on camera so I could show it to you, but I don't need it on camera. Yesterday afternoon, I got my four oldest sons, my wife and my fifth son washed, but we just had a, we had a, co a competition. We took a couple hours and we said, we're gonna compete. I had a Bo Jackson baseball card. So obviously we're talking about the greatest athlete in the history of mankind right here, no questions asked. And I said, all right, we're going to have a Bo Jackson competition, all right? And it's going to be nine innings. And in it was a baseball card, Bo Jackson baseball card, not the one where he broke his bat on his helmet or thought or anything. Just, he had just hit a home run. And, and um, I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go nine innings of competition. I described every inning. And whoever wins the most innings gets this Bo Jackson. And my boys are just fired up, chest out. They're so excited. So we begin to go inning by inning. There was hitting competitions, and there was – uh, feats of great strength and endurance, and you know, Bo kind of combines everything. So we we're trying to combine everything. And in this one inning, I think it was our fifth inning if, or fourth inning, if I'm not mistaken. I lined them up and I scattered the lineup based on their age. So my oldest son kind of had the had the handicap. He was in the very back. Then the next, and then there was a gap. Then the next, a gap next. And I said, "Okay, you're running to the gate, to the front gate, and back to me." And it would be about a 100-yard race, I would say, all the way to the gate and back. It's about 100 yards. And, of course, they all wanted a little better position than they got. Everybody's flesh is going to complain. That's what we do naturally. And I convinced them that Bo Jackson was not a whiner, that you take what you get. In fact, you ask somebody to make it harder on you, and then you compete. You give it your all. And, when we, and it was so funny. Uh, my wife helped me think through the staggered order, and we got it all set. And we said go. And I had no idea. I didn't even know if it was fair. I had no idea. But we said go, and these guys take off. And about the time they hit the halfway point, the, the, the pile was kind of narrowing together. And as they were about halfway back to me, it was obvious that this was going to be absolutely neck and neck. That 
we had done the staggering just perfect. And my little guy, I mean, I wish it looked like chariots of fire. I could see it in slow motion. Just the, the quads coming up, the cheeks bouncing. He was just, and then right on his shoulder was the, the second youngest. I mean, he was straining. His eyes were closed. You saw just veins in his neck. And right behind him, about a foot taller, was the second oldest. And I could see those strides. He was, ca- he was grabbing hold, and he was catching. And you saw in him, it looked like tears. I mean, his, he was fighting so hard. And right behind him, hat on backwards, was the oldest. And he was just grinding. And I saw this look on all their face, just staggered right out. And as they came to the finish line, I mean, which was my, my hands, it was like literally two of them lunged. Jonathan lunged so hard, he hits on his shoulder, he rolls. David launches over him onto his face. Luke then collides over him. We literally had a pile in the dusty muck and mud of these boys laying there, heaving, tears in their eyes, looking back. And my wife just looks at me like, oh my gosh, what just happened? She, she was raised among all girls. And uh, I want to tell you, that was striving after the prize. You know what Paul will say in the verses following, I want to know? He says, I will strive for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I will count everything else lost. I will strive. And what's his assurance that the Holy Spirit carries him along, that the victory is already his, that it will be completed when he meets Christ face to face. His joy is in the race. Run it with perseverance. Eyes fixed on Jesus. Strive for what's ahead. And let the ministry of the Holy Spirit carry you along towards Christ our Savior. Let me just close with this thought. In Genesis, with this, um, the great story of when Abraham is seeking out a wife for his son, Isaac, he sends his servant, Eliezer. And Eliezer, he sends him back to his homeland, the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he says, go find a wife from among my people for my son. And so the servant goes out with the, uh, sent, being sent by the father, looking for a bride for the son. And the servant gets to the land, and, and he asks God, he says, okay, uh, bring one who, the, the one that says I'll, I'll not only uh, water you but your camels let you drink but also water your camels that will be the one and sure enough uh here comes rebecca and she's beautiful and he asks for uh to drink and she gives him a drink and says may i water your camels and and the servant is going yes this is it this is the one and he goes on to share with rebecca all of the riches of the father and then he goes to her brother-in-law, to Laban, and he's sharing about the father's glory and that there's a good and loving father who has given his entire kingdom to his son. Everything that's the father's has been given to the son. And there's a son awaiting a bride. And you can't see him. You gotta take my word for it. You gotta trust me. You've gotta come with me and I'll take you to the son on the orders of the father. And there's this incredible picture of the Holy Spirit's ministry, who testifies to the greatness of the Father, who goes after the bride for the Son. And there's this incredible moment when they say, well, we might need Rebecca to stay here for a couple weeks and the, whole, and, the, and the servant, the Holy Spirit. The servant Eliezer says to Rachel, or sorry, whoo, messed this up, says to Rebecca, will you go? And she says, 
I'll go. I'll leave everything I have in faith of a son who is going to love me as his bride and cherish me and whose father has given him the entire kingdom and I'm going to trade in this kingdom for his. I'll be his. And she goes along. And can you just imagine that ride of Rebecca with Eleazar leading her home to the son and all the glories of the father and how she must have been saying, tell me more about Isaac. Tell me about, tell me about how his birth was supernaturally conceived. Tell me about, tell me about the time that, that he, was, he was dead. He was, he was offered up as a sacrifice, and yet God intervened, and it was as if he was resurrected from the dead. Tell me more about it. Tell me about the riches of the Father that are his. Tell me about the coming kingdom that's his. Tell me more. Eleazar was probably worn out telling stories of the glory of the Son and the riches of the Father. Church, that's us. The Father has sent the servant, the Spirit, who has testified to his riches and the glory of the Son, who has invited us to be the bride. And when we say, yes, I'm in, we now are on an adventure where the Holy Spirit is leading us back to Christ, leading us all the way to, until we meet him face to face, until the wedding feast of the Lamb, until the bridegroom comes for the bride, we follow and we say, tell me more, tell me more. Father, may we be a spirit that are, a people that are overjoyed by our relationship with you, Holy Spirit. May we be a people who delight in the knowledge of the Son, the relational intimacy that is ours in Christ. Holy Spirit, you are our treasure, you are our promise, our gift, that we don't have to live lives in and according to our own flesh. We don't have to stumble around here frustrated like we're people in dark, for the light has come, the light of the world, and, and he has shined the light. You, Lord Jesus, have been illumined to us by the power of your Spirit, and we now long for more light. We leave the darkness behind. We say, tell us more. Lead us further. Lord, I pray for the people of this church that you would do that. You would do just that. You would illumine the beauty of Christ to us day by day until we meet him face to face. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.